You are listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Well, there are many ways that we can think about how life functions. When we try to zoom out of our day-to-day lives, we can say, you know, life is all about a series of ups and downs, of sorrows and victories, of the daily grind and of exciting moments. But I think one of the ways that we can characterize life is it's a series of questions and answers. It's a series of questions and answers. There's the big questions like, who do I marry? What kind of career do I pursue? Where do I live? But then there's also the the day-to-day questions like, what do I eat for breakfast? What am I going to wear to church? You know, earlier this morning, I was folding laundry, and the question in my mind was, which socks go with which socks? Daily life is a matter of questions and answers. And the ironic thing about this is that we spend so much time with those questions and answering those questions that we, we ignore actually the most important question that we can ever ask or try to answer, and that's this. Who is God? Who is God? You ask your average Canadian that simple question, and most would say, well, I'm not sure. I think a lot of people believe that there is some kind of higher power, some kind of supreme being, whether they call that being the universe or God or, or you know, a higher power. Uh, they, the point is they don't really know who that power is. They may have questions, they may even engage in some spiritual searching, but the reality is, and we all know this, that life becomes so overwhelming that we just don't spend much time on questions like that. We work, we play, we sleep on repeat until we get to the point of a midlife crisis or we're confronted with death when a, death, when, when a loved one dies, or perhaps we're on our deathbed ourselves, and we wonder, where did, where did my life go? Where, where did all of my days and months and years go, and why am I no closer to answering this question, who is God? And perhaps that's you today. Perhaps you've been on a journey towards trying to answer this question, but it actually feels less like a journey and more like aimless wandering. Journeys are done with direction, with purpose. There's adventure involved in it, but you have a sense of where you're going. You have a map, you have a plan, you, you know that you're headed in the right direction even though you haven't yet arrived. But wandering, wandering is, is random. You, can, you could walk in circles. You could end up where you were when you started years ago. And you're just hoping that the right circumstances or the right people will come across your path to help you answer this question, who is God? But there really are no guarantees. You, you hope to get lucky. You hope to have your questions answered by chance. You feel less like a person with their eyes wide open and more like a person who is blindfolded, wandering aimlessly in a room, searching for something that you don't even know about. Well, Christianity tells us that we don't have to stumble around in the dark because God himself has reached into our darkness and revealed himself to us. 
Christianity teaches that God isn't hidden in the shadows. He is in the light. And he's revealed himself in such a way that anyone who seeks him will find him. How do we do that? How do we seek him? Well, we seek him and we find him by seeking him in the Bible. That's why the Bible is so important. It's not just an ancient book. It is the timeless revelation of God himself. It is the self-communication of God to human beings, of who he is, what he has done, and how people like us fit within his grand plans of creation. That's why there's nothing more important to us here at Sovereign Grace than reading the Bible by ourselves in our homes and with our families and together here at church when we gather in any of our corporate meetings, especially when we're gathered on a Sunday afternoon. And that's what we do. That's what we're going to do today. Sunday after Sunday, we open the Bible and we read to understand and to try to answer this question, who is God? Who is he? And what does he want from us? What is he doing in the world? How do we define who we are as human beings in relation to who he is? And so when I step onto the stage or when a pastor steps onto the stage behind this pulpit, people aren't leaning in to hear what I have to say. And if you are, I want to issue you some correction. You're supposed to lean in to hear about what God has to say. My role isn't to inspire you or to be your life coach. This is not a TED Talk. I'm not here to talk about my experiences or my life lessons. I'm here to point you to the holy, timeless, eternal word of God. Every Sunday, we are looking into God's word so that we can learn more about who God is, what he has done, and what he has accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ to bring us back into a personal intimate and loving relationship with him. You know, we're all on a journey towards knowing God. None of us have fully arrived there yet. You know, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he says, now we know in part. He didn't know fully. He knows in part. He sees as in a mirror dimly. And he looked forward to the day when he would see God and know God fully, as even as God knows him fully. All of us are on a journey. And some of us are headed in the right direction. And others are headed in the wrong direction. My role is to try to point you back on the right path, the ancient highways to heaven, the ways to God set out in scripture. I'm like a guide on a hike. We're all on a hike together, and it's a, it's a beautiful forest, and we're exploring this new territory together, and I'm trying to point you to the beautiful things in that forest. If you spend your time staring at me, you know, as I'm pointing you to that beautiful outcrop of trees or that that rocky canyon, and you're just like nodding and you're staring at me, you've missed the point. My my, my role, my God-given role is to point you to someone greater and more beautiful and more glorious than any human being. If we do that, then we can together know God and enjoy him together. So today what we're going to do is we're going to study three verses, just three verses in a book of the Bible called Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four. If you don't have your own Bible, it's, these verses are printed in your bulletin. And these three verses teach us some amazing things about who God is. And as we'll see, 
These verses teach us about who God is by, by using the language of the priesthood. The priesthood. Now, some of you may come from Catholic backgrounds or uh, some kind of nominal Christian background. Perhaps you, you went to church once in a while or you're familiar at least with priests from pop culture. And uh, for those who are familiar with the priesthood, you'll, you, you may believe that, that priests are necessary to function as a mediator between us and God. They're like the gatekeepers between us in the earthly realm and God in the spiritual realm. Priests are seen as mediators. If you have sins that you need to confess, you need to go to a priest in the confessional booth. If you want to have communion with God, you have to go to church and, and uh, participate in a ceremony that is mediated by a priest. If you want to approach God, you've got to go through his priests. Now, that's actually one reason why many people have been turned off from religion. They read about the latest reports and allegations about priestly abuse, priestly scandals, and they say, those people, they're all hypocrites. And I could never be a part of a church that shelters people like that. But if you look at the Bible, we actually find something wonderfully surprising about the priesthood. Yes, we need a priest to mediate between us and God, but this priest isn't who we might expect. In fact, he's not even living on earth. He's not found in confessional booths. He's not found in temples or even in churches. He is found in heaven. The only priest we will ever need, the only mediator between God and man is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the heart of the Christmas message. Christmas is about the story about how Jesus came into the world to live as a man, to die as a man, and to rise again as a man so that he could represent us as our great high priest, the only priest we will ever need. So with that said, let's read our three verses today. Hebrews chapter four, we'll be reading verses 14 to 16. Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 to 16. This is me as your tour guide pointing you to what is truly beautiful. This is the word of the Lord. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The title of this sermon is The Only Priest We Need. The Only Priest We Need. My aim today is to show you simply that Jesus alone gives us access to God. Jesus alone gives us access to God. We're going to break up these three verses into two points. First, what are we to do? And second, how are we to do it? How, what are we to do and how are we to do it? The first thing I want you to notice in these three verses is that they call us to do two things. There's a lot of theological language and imagery here and, and things that are describing spiritual realities, but, but contained within these three verses are two action steps. 
And that's because Christianity is not just about knowledge. It's not just about taking information in. It's about how that knowledge translates into action. It's about how truth changes the way that we live. So there are two action steps in these three verses, and we're going to focus on them first. As we think about what we are called to do by the Holy Scriptures as God communicates to us. Well, the first is found at the end of verse 14. It says, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, if you come from a religious context, you'll think, well, confession is like, you know, when you go to speak to a priest and you confess your sins. Uh, You tell someone about your sins. You're confessing your sins. Well, that's not what it means here. Confession here means the verbal expression of what you believe. It's the verbal expression of what you believe about God. It's what people do when they recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. The point of doing that isn't just to recite a mantra or to go through a religious exercise. It's to express your confession of belief, to say, this is what I believe, and this is what I am committed to live by. These are the truths that I'm going to base my life off of as I go from youth to old age. Now, we live in a time when very, people, very few people actually have a confession of faith. You know, we, we live in an age of skepticism. It's an age when people don't know what they believe, and they actually prefer it to be like that. Skepticism is exalted as a virtue. So when they encounter people with strong beliefs, strong confessions of, of faith, uh, they actually view them as being closed-minded, You know, we hear the word bigots a lot. They're not open to other belief systems. They think that the best way to live is just to keep an open mind. But there's a saying that your mind can be so open that your brains fall out. Now, these people, they say that true knowledge is gathering information without ever planting yourself somewhere. It's seeking without finding. It's inquiring, but never concluding. Well, if that's you, then listen to what the great British scholar and thinker C.S. Lewis said when he wrote this. He says, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Isn't that interesting? In an age of skepticism, we can think we're so clever in seeing through things that we're actually revealing that we're not so clever after all. Is that you today? Are you seeing through all things to the point that you're not seeing anything at all? Well, that's not knowledge. Let's just get that straight. That's not knowledge. That's perpetual doubt. And what we need to recognize is that perpetual doubt, a disposition of skepticism, is actually a belief in itself. It's its own kind of confession. You've actually come to believe that you can never arrive at a belief. I wonder if the skeptics recognize when they, that, that when they call people of faith closed-minded, they're actually being equally closed-minded by being closed-minded to those who they believe are closed-minded. There are many things that people can confess, and skepticism is one of them. It's a belief system. Believers aren't the only ones doing the believing Unbelievers are doing their fair share of believing as well. The only difference is what they believe. As a Christian, I believe that I can come to a knowledge of God through the scriptures. 
As a skeptic, someone might say, well, I, I don't believe that. And that's fine. We can, we can disagree. But let's not go on pretending as if I'm the only one doing the believing. We're all doing believing. The only difference is my belief leads to faith. And your belief leads to doubt. Verse 14 says it doesn't have to be that way. It says, let us hold fast our confession. That is the confession of the Christian faith. The central doctrines of Christianity. The verse is saying that if you believe, if you're a Christian, then don't give up. Don't hold on to your confession loosely so that the world rips it out of your grasp. Hold fast to it with greater resolve and commitment. But if you don't believe, it doesn't have to stay that way. You can exchange your confession of skepticism for a confession of Christ. But first you need to stop trying to see through him. And you need to see him as he really is instead. That's the first thing we are called to do, to let us hold fast our confession, to come to and remain in a belief system founded and rooted and maturing out of the Christian faith. The second thing we're called to do is found in verse 16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We are to hold fast our confession and we are to draw near to the throne of grace. Now the throne is a common biblical symbol for God because God is reigning on his throne in heaven like a monarch. The only difference is he is the king of the universe, not just the king of a specific nation. He is the almighty king reigning with absolute sovereignty. He commands legions of angels. He laughs at his enemies and he silences his rivals with a simple word from his mouth. He reigns in such a way that he preserves all things, ordains all things, and governs all things for the purpose of his will. How could we, mere finite, fallen human beings like us, approach a king like that? How could we, whose days are like the flowers of the field, like a vapor in the wind, here today and gone tomorrow, approach the everlasting king? You know, it's hard enough to make an appointment with the Queen of England. You know, at heart, even though I'm a Chinese man born in Canada, at heart, I'm a British man. I always wished that I had been born in England. I, I love everything British, and maybe one day I'll have a chance to, to visit. But earlier this week, I was browsing on the Queen's website, the queen has her own website. Didn't you know that you, you don't actually exist unless you have your own website? Well, I was on the queen's website and uh, I was trying to find out how do, I, how do I make an appointment with the queen? I want to I meet her and uh, I want to have a conversation with her. She, she, I've seen all these pictures of her on my coins and on my Canadian bills. I want to see her face to face. Well, I, I can't see her unless I become either the Prime Minister of Canada, the Ambassador of Canada to England, or I become a war hero or something. There's no time that... The Queen doesn't have time for average people like me. And I dare say, like you. We're average. We can't book an appointment with the Queen of England. How could we, then, make an appointment with the King of the Universe? Verse 16 says that we don't have to because he has invited us. He has issued the invitation himself, the royal decree 
to say, draw near to me. Draw, draw near to my throne. Not cowering in submission or fear, but with confidence. Come with confidence and boldness. God has given us a royal invitation, not just to his house, to his palace, but to his throne room where he sits in judgment over all. That's what a throne symbolizes. It symbolizes judgment. Justice is executed from the throne of the king. But the amazing thing about this invitation is that it beckons us to approach not the throne of judgment, but the throne of grace. The throne of grace. And what is grace? Well, grace is what we give to someone when we show them kindness, even when they were unkind to us. Grace is what we give when we speak well of someone who has slandered us. Grace is what we give when we love our enemies. Grace is what we give when we are patient with those who are angry with us and who are tempting us to become equally angry. Grace is favor that is undeserved unmerited favor. And as we approach God, as we respond to his royal invitation to draw near to him, we are being invited to receive grace. And notice what it says at the end of verse 16. It says, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To help in time of need. All of us have needs. And all of us need help with those needs. The only question is what kind of help are we getting? Is it mere human help? Is that sufficient? Or do we need divine help? When we are weak, we need strength. When we are afraid, we need courage. When we have sinned and our conscience lies heavy on us, we need forgiveness. When we are despairing of life, we need Hope when we are lamenting the fact that we live in such a way that we hurt the people who are closest to us, grace is what turns us into people who heal instead. And the best thing about this grace that God offers to us to help us in our time of need is that it is undeserved, it is free, given to us as a gift. The God of the universe has called us to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is it that you need today? What do you need today? Is it healing in your relationships? Is it peace with who God has made you to be? Is it satisfaction for a hungry, insatiable soul? Is it forgiveness for a burdened conscience? Well, come near to God. Come near and receive Not judgment, but grace to help you in your time of need. You know, one of the wonderful gifts of the scriptures is its realistic outlook on life. It doesn't sugarcoat life for anyone, not even Christians. It doesn't promise that if you're a faithful Christian, life's going to go the way that you always wanted it to go. Life's going to be smooth, you're going to be healthy, you're going to have children, you're going to live to a good old age, and you're going to die in your sleep. 
The Christian faith, the, the Bible actually teaches that if you're a Christian, you're going to be persecuted. And you're going to suffer to an even greater degree than others. The Bible is so realistic in confronting the reality and darkness and suffering of our lives. And, and, and in that darkness, it offers us supernatural help, divine help to sustain us in the midst of our hardest trials. Life's going to be hard for everyone. Loved ones are going to die. Friends are going to betray you. Our bodies are going to decay and weaken. But the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe has promised to help you in your time of need, whatever those needs may be. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. These two things. Hold fast your confession and draw near to God. It's personal conviction about what you believe and personal relationship with the one you believe in. Personal conviction about what you believe and personal relationship with the one you believe in. A commitment to truth and to love. It's knowing the one that you love and loving the one that you know. And that's God's invitation to us all. Regardless of your religious background, regardless of where you are right now spiritually, his invitation to you is to draw near to his throne of grace as his own beloved children. Well, how do we do that? How, how do we receive this gracious invitation into the throne room of God? Because none of us can approach God's throne room by ourselves. We need to be brought in. Anyone can be brought in. The worst of sinners can be brought in. If I can be brought in, anybody can be brought in. But we need to be invited. We need to be brought in. And this is when we get to the second point. How, how do we do this? And the only way that we can come into the throne room of God's grace is through our great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So that's what we're going to look at now. Our text today gives us two reasons how we are to do what we are called to do, how we are to hold fast our confession and draw near to the throne of grace. The first is found in verse 14. The logic of this verse is simple. It's since we have this, let us do that. Since we have a car, let us go on a road trip. What we have here enables us to hold fast our confession. And what is it that we have? Verse 14 says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We have a priest named Jesus who makes it possible for us to draw near to God in faith and in personal relationship. Now notice what he's called. He's called a great high priest. Before Jesus came, if you read the Old Testament, you'll notice that uh, God's people, Israel, could only come to him through God's priests. The priests were indeed mediators between God and man between the divine and the human. And they mediated primarily by offering sacrifices on behalf of people. The, the high priest was no different, except he had one unique task. The high priest, once a year, was called to offer a special sacrifice on a special day of the year called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was a day when God's people acknowledged that their sins their failure to obey God's commands, their, their idolatrous inclinations to worship other gods, those sins deserve the penalty of death. But instead of receiving that punishment, that penalty of death, 
it was put on a sacrificed animal instead. That's what happened on the Day of Atonement. High priests would go and offer these sacrifices and atone for the sins of the people that he was representing. But there was a problem with this system. There was a problem. One was that the high priest was a sinner himself. And so if he messed up the procedure or if he approached God in an unworthy manner, the whole day of atonement would have been futile. God would not have received those sacrifices as effective. The other problem was that the high priest was just a man. He was immortal and he would die. And after he died, a new high priest would be appointed and have to take his place. It sounds simple enough to go and just find a, a successor to appoint his son, perhaps. But it wasn't that simple. You know, there were vast generations of time in Israel's history where the Day of Atonement was never celebrated because the high priest, just like priests today, he was corrupted and they weren't paying attention to the scriptures and they lost the practice of the Day of Atonement and therefore the people of God uh, were not being atoned for uh, because of the sins that they had committed. The Day of Atonement was a fallible ceremony led by fallible men. But verse 14 says that we don't have to be afraid of that happening again. We don't have to be afraid that our sins will fail to be atoned for because we don't just have any high priest. We have a great high priest, a great high priest, And he doesn't just minister in this earthly temple. You know, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would have to go into a section in the temple called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. No one was able to go in there unless he was the high priest and unless it was the Day of Atonement. If you went in there, you would die. But Jesus, the great high priest, he doesn't just just intercede for us in an earthly placeholder in the symbol of the true heavenly reality. He has passed through the heavens where he intercedes at God's right hand forever. He will never die. He lives to make intercession for us to the end of days. That is why Jesus came into the world. That is why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus came into the world to intercede for us, to mediate for us, to act as our high priest. And the most amazing truth about his intercession is that he did not carry a lamb in his arms before God. He did not lead a goat or a bull to sacrifice for the sins of people. He he went in empty-handed with no living creature in his presence but himself because he went to offer the sacrifice of himself He is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not only was he he a greater high priest, he was a greater sacrifice in the greater tabernacle in heaven. He has fulfilled the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Jesus is the great high priest who has offered the greatest sacrifice at the very right hand of God. That's the first reason why we can do these two things of holding fast our confession and drawing near to God. We can believe knowing that our belief won't be in vain. We can draw near knowing that God's throne of judgment has indeed been turned into a throne of grace. Because Christ, our high priest, has passed through the heavens as our resurrected savior. 
And now he makes intercession for us. The second reason why we can do these two things, hold fast to our confession and draw near to God, is found in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, this verse is reminding us that though Jesus has passed through the heavens, he is now far from us physically, geographically, he is not on the earth anymore. He, that doesn't mean that he relates to us with cold detachment, with distant, remote communication. He, he comes close to us with the warmth of his sympathy, with compassion and love because he knows exactly what we are going through. He, he knows the weakness of our frail bodies. He knows the limits of our finite minds. He knows every struggle against the temptations of sin because he has tasted it all himself. Now you might wonder, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with biblical Christology, you know, the doctrine of who Christ is, you say, well, I mean, of course he knows. He's fully God. God is omniscient. He knows all things. But there's a difference between the knowledge of omniscience and the knowledge of experience. As the son of God, Jesus has always known about our temptations. He's always known about weaknesses. Nothing escapes his knowledge. But when he became the son of man, he came to a knowledge about our weaknesses and about our temptations in a personal way. You know, the Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod wrote this. He experiences life in a human body and in a human soul. He experiences human pain and human temptations he suffers poverty and loneliness and humiliation. He tastes death. Before and apart from the incarnation, God knew such things by observations. But observations, even when it is that of omniscience, fall short of personal experience. That is what the incarnation made possible for God. Real, personal experience of being human. You know, Jesus doesn't just know everything about you. Jesus has felt it along with you. He has tasted every moment of your weakness, past, present, and future, and knows exactly what you are going through. I mean, that's, if you just read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, with that eye, you know, what, what would he have been tempted by when that former prostitute was washing his feet with her hair? What would he have been tempted to do when the rich young ruler came up to him and said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What was he tempted to do when his friends betrayed him in his moment of greatest need? And then he rose from the dead and he approached them again. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. But more than that, Jesus was tempted in ways that we have never been tempted he knows a degree of temptation that none of us has ever experienced because he was not just fully man. He was and is fully God. And as one who is fully God, he was tempted to do things that went far beyond what we could do in our human capacity. I mean, who among us has been tempted to turn stone into bread? Who among us has been tempted to call down fire from heaven to wipe away an entire village that rejected you? Who among us has been tempted to summon 12 legions of angels 
When the very people we had come to save were rejecting us and intent to kill us. None of us, because none of us were capable of doing that. But Jesus was capable. He could have done any of those things, but he didn't. He was tempted but did not give in because he was committed to doing only what the Father had commanded him to do. Jesus was tempted in every respect that we are and more, yet he did not sin, not even once. Now some people say, well, if he never sinned, he couldn't really relate to me because, I mean, you gotta live through what I'm living through in being tempted and giving in to sin to really know what it's like. But here's the reality. If you have any experience fighting and resisting temptation, you know that the longer you resist, the harder it becomes. Temptations do not go away with time. Every moment of temptation that you do not give in becomes harder and harder to resist until you finally decide to give in just to relieve some of the pressure. Resisting temptation doesn't end it. It only gives the temptation more fuel. And if you give in to temptation routinely and quickly, you don't actually, you're actually the one who doesn't know what temptation is like. You've never fully tasted its power, but Jesus has. Because he didn't just resist for a few hours or for, for a few days, but for an entire lifetime. And Jesus knows what you're going through. And his response to you, unlike how someone like us might respond, isn't, Well, I did it. Why can't you? It's not condescension. It's not pride and arrogance. It's not, I expect you to do it because I could do it. No, his response is one of sympathy and compassion. It's, I know what it's like for you. I know what you're going through. I know how hard it is. And let me help you. Let me provide you with the grace that you need to overcome this. You know, everyone's looking for someone who can fully understand what they're going through. But you're never going to find that person until you find that person in Jesus. Jesus knows. He has felt personally and in a greater magnitude every single one of your pains. And he is waiting with his arms stretched wide open to help you. And so the question is, will you let him help you? Will you turn to him as the only priest you'll ever need? All of us need help to walk with God. That's why this church exists. That's why I have a job. My job, our church's function, is to help people walk with God. We're trying to help each other do that. We're trying to help people who don't yet know God to start doing that and to be faithful in doing that. We all need help. But before any of that can happen, you need to, to put your faith in Jesus. You need to receive the royal invitation into the throne room of God. Jesus is the only priest you'll ever need because he's the only one who can mediate between you and God. You're not going to find a priest behind a pulpit. Definitely not this one. You're not going to find a priest in a confessional booth. You're not even going to find him as as a living person here, living on earth that you can see. But you will find him in the pages of scripture. And if you reach out to him, you'll find that he was actually not that far from you, but very near. And so will you do that? Will you give up your skepticism and embrace faith in Christ? Faith in Christ. There's nothing more powerful than that. Not faith in government, not faith in 
family, not faith in ourselves. Faith in Christ alone will give us the joy that we have been looking for for so long. And it's our faith in Christ that will help us to overcome every suffering and temptation. As 1 John chapter 5 says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And so we go back to our original question. Who, who is God? Who is God? Well, he's the almighty king of the universe who invites you to draw near to himself. And he has made a way for you to draw near to himself by giving you the gift of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus has paid for the sins of all who put their trust in him so that people like you and me can begin this glorious adventure of knowing and enjoying God forever. That's what Christmas is all about. It's why we put lights on our houses. They light up the darkness and remind us that a better day has come. The light has dawned into the world so that we don't need to wander around aimlessly searching for God without hope like blind men and blind women. For Christ has come. The Savior has come. God has revealed himself to the world. As the scriptures say, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so this Christmas, may Christ free you from the shadow of death. May Christ open your eyes to see his beauty. And may Christ give you mercy and give you grace to help you in your time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us grace. All here who are honest with themselves about their mistakes and sins and regrets, we know that we don't deserve anything from you. But you have given us the greatest gift you could ever give, the gift of your son, our great high priest and our final sacrifice who has passed through the heavens that we might draw near to you with boldness and confidence. I pray, Father, that all of us here would know the sweetness of this relationship, that as you call us to draw near, you would give us grace to draw near, that we might know you and love you and know your love forever. In Jesus' name, amen.